Well, studies have been done that have uh, looked at how long can people survive without certain things. And they found, depending upon various factors, that someone can go without food for between four to six weeks. With water, it's a week or less. With air, it's between four to six minutes before irreversible damage begins to be done. And with hope, there are debates as to the amount of time, but everyone agrees that hope is needed to not only survive but to also thrive. So we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a passage where we're going to see that there were several people who were at the end of their rope when it came to hope. And while the situations were different, the solution is the same as they came to Jesus and found the help that they needed. I invite you to look with me now as we read Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. It says, And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man by the name of Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet, and he began to implore him to come. To his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding around and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling. And she fell down before him, and she declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now we'll pick up the second part of the story in a moment of this miracle within a miracle that we're looking at. But I want us to linger here uh, as, just to look at these ladies in the context first. You see that we're told Jesus has just returned. If you've been with us as we've been going through this series in Luke, you'll remember what's been going on previous to this passage. It's been a busy day. Jesus has been out teaching the multitudes. Uh, he calmed a storm. He cast out demons out of the demon-possessed man. And now he is back amongst another crowd. And he's surrounded and being jostled, and and as they're pushing Jesus along, uh, Jesus says, who touched me? Now, don't you love Peter? Peter's my buddy. He's Captain Obvious. He's, He's the guy that is always saying what we're thinking. And Peter says, Lord, who hasn't touched you? But Jesus says, no, someone special touched me. Now, the woman who comes forward would say she's anything but special. I want you to notice, we don't even know her name, do we? Which is in contrast to the other main story that is going on here. There's this man by the name of Jairus. We're not only told his name, but we're told his position. He's the the head of the local synagogue. This means that he's in a place of power, prominence, and wealth. He's probably the most important person in that entire town. And with the the connections he has and with the cash he has, there's no doubt that he's been able to bring in the best doctors that money could buy when it came to trying to help his daughter. And yet we see that all of it has failed because his daughter is dying. So this daddy is desperate. And he does what any parent here would do, doing whatever it takes. 
And so as the synagogue official, you'll recall as we've gone through Luke and as you read the rest of the the New Testament, you know that the religious leaders didn't like Jesus. So Jairus is a guy who uh, would be avoiding Jesus or against Christ, but he pushes his way through the crowd. Now that's unique as well. He's the guy that people always get out of the way. He's the guy with the motorcade, so to speak. But here this desperate father pushes his way through the crowd. And throwing all pride aside, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus in the dirt. Going against what all his buddies would say, don't talk to Jesus. Jairus says, he is the guy that can help my daughter and I will do whatever it takes. So he humbles himself. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Because as we saw earlier in Luke chapter 7 verse 15, he's heard the stories about how Christ went up and stopped a funeral. How he interrupted a funeral and brought a little boy back from the dead. Earlier in Luke chapter 7, and now Jairus, hoping against hope, says, Jesus, will you come and help my daughter? Now, as this is taking place, while we have the life of a 12-year-old girl that is hanging in the balance, we see there's another 12-year-old problem in the crowd. Because we're told that there's a woman who's been suffering with a medical issue for 12 years, and she's pushing her way through the crowd as well, trying to work her way toward Christ. Now, remember that that Luke is a medical doctor. So whenever Luke tells us some uh, tidbit of information like this, this this medical diagnosis, he's saying this woman has an issuance of blood. Luke is the doctor, is looking at her chart and saying there's some type of a a menstrual problem that this, this woman has. Now, women here can understand a little bit of what's going on in the story because they understand the the cramps and the fatigue and the the problems that can come with a normal cycle. But this is not normal. This is a woman who isn't just going through her cycle for a period of days. This is something that has been happening day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, every day for 12 years. This woman has been suffering from this issuance of blood. Imagine how wiped out she is. Imagine how anemic she is from losing blood for 12 full years. And to go with the physical fatigue, being wiped out, she's also wiped out financially because we're told here she spent all of her resources talking to doctors, seeking help. And none of them have been able to help her. And as we add to this problem of all that's happening, uh, there's the isolation she would have been going through for the last 12 years. You can turn over in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 15 if you'd like, or you can simply listen as I read it for you. But in Leviticus 15, 19 through 27, this is what it tells us about what this woman is facing. It says, when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it be the bed or the other things on which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Verse 25 
talks about her situation specifically. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days and not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as through her, her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean like her uncleanliness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Now, I bet you've probably never heard a passage like that read in church before, have you? <laughs> so why do I read a passage like this? And, and some of you are sitting here thinking, Why is that even in the Bible? I mean, how backwards is that, right? But I want to remind us that when the book of Leviticus was written, it was 3,400 years ago. They didn't have the modern sanitary conveniences we have in our day. They didn't have the understanding of germs and blood-borne pathogens that we have in our day. When God gave the Levitical law to his people, it was for protection, He set up standards and things that would protect his people from the diseases and the things that were rampant in in that time period. God was protecting his people. But in doing so, when it comes to a woman like this, we see that she was totally cut off. It means that a woman like this couldn't be sitting here in Wayside this morning in worship because wherever she sat, that area was considered unclean. Anybody who touched her was considered unclean. So she couldn't come to the synagogue. She couldn't go to worship God. If she has a husband, he couldn't sleep in the same bed with her. He couldn't have uh, marital relations with her. So if she was married after 12 years of this, in all likelihood, he may have just walked out on her. She's alone. You couldn't eat food that she prepared. You couldn't touch things she had touched. You couldn't sit down with her at a meal. This is a woman for 12 years has been alone. She's isolated. She's living in the shadows of society. She should not have been in the crowd. As we're reading this passage, as she's in the crowd, as she's pushing and touching people, everybody around her, if they knew, would have been screaming out, unclean, you've made me impure, you shouldn't be here. And yet this woman in her desperation is in the crowd because she's heard about Jesus. She's heard about Jesus making a paralyzed man walk. The lame are walking. She's heard about the blind receiving sight. She's heard about demon-possessed people being set free. She's heard about even the dead being raised from the dead. And she thinks, maybe this Jesus can give me my life back. And just like Jairus, who's desperate and is willing to throw all pride aside and push through the crowd, this woman says, I will do whatever it takes to come to Jesus. Friends, some of you are here this morning that are a little bit like this woman. You're sitting here this morning saying, I shouldn't be here in church. If the people around me knew who I was or what I've done, they'd be moving away and shouting unclean. And you came here in desperation maybe this morning, hoping against hope for a touch from Jesus and that he might give you your life back. I want to tell you, friends, you've come to the right place. Because in John 10.10, Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life, and you might have life abundantly. Here was a woman who was an outcast. 
She has no identity, no place, no voice in the community. And contrast that with Jairus. He's a guy who has a place in the community of prominence. He's a guy who has the voice in the city. When he speaks on Saturday in the Sabbath in the synagogue, everybody listens. Two desperate people on two ends of the scale, and the foot of the cross is level for all of us. Jesus says, come as you are. I don't care if you are the highest person in society or the lowest outcast in the shadows. Come to Jesus. And as this woman comes, verse 44 says, she reached out and she touched the fringe of his cloak. Now, the Greek word for fringe here is kraspedon. And it's a word that you'll find translated in other passages in the New Testament as a tassel. Like in Matthew 23, 5, where there Jesus was correcting the religious leaders for the showy displays. As he said to them in Matthew 23, 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. Phylacteries were these leather bands they would wrap around their arms or the, the, the box of scripture they would place on their head. And, and the, the tassels are, are things that they would wear. I have a, a, a tallit here. This is a, a Jewish prayer shawl. And Jewish men would, would wear coverings like this. And as you look down on the end, you see these tassels. This is what we're talking about. Now, you can't really see what it is here, so I've, I've got a slide for you to show you what we're looking at. These, these tassels, now you see a variety of different ways of making it because it's based on, on various traditions in Judaism. But you'll notice that there's a, a blue thread that's through it. It's why you see blue on the Israeli flag. It's why uh, there's blue on here. It's a color of royalty along with purple. And it represents the Lord. And, and a combination of the, the cords and the double knotting and the various things that are there, you can't really tell from these, but there are 613 knots in each of these tassels. Now, why are there 613? Many people think of the Ten Commandments, but in the Scripture, there are actually 613 commandments. It's why when the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every one of us is a sinner, we have. Nobody here has kept the Big Ten Try to keep 613. And so these tassels were reminders of the Levitical law and the Deuteronomic law. These were the, the commandments and the various things. And, and Jewish observant men would wear these because of what's found in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 40 of Numbers 15 tell us, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put the tassels each on a corner, a cord of blue. And it it shall be that when you look at a tassel, you will remember the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Deuteronomy 22.12 tells us, You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. So as Jesus is walking along, as this woman reaches out to touch the hem of his garment, it's, it's not like the bottom of his toga. It's one of these. Whether accidentally on purpose, what she reaches out for is she touches this, the reminder of the law of God. And what a beautiful picture 
Because at that very moment, we're told, immediately the issuance of blood dried up. She was not only healed, but it was beyond the physical healing. It was a reminder to her as one who was under the law, one who was a broken sinner. She's violating the law right there by being in the crowd. And as she reaches out and touches it, she comes under what is called the covering of God. Jesus Christ was the one who came to fulfill the law, to pay the penalty of death that we all owed for our violation of the law. And as she reaches out and she touches this, it's a beautiful picture. If you've ever read the the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, you see another beautiful picture related to the covering. In the the book of Ruth, there's a, a man by the name of Boaz, a righteous older Israelite who you'll remember eventually marries Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth was a foreigner. She was outside of the family of God. She was outside of the covenant people of Israel. But she becomes a follower of the true God, Yahweh. And Boaz says to her in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, May the Lord reward you and your work and your wages be in full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to seek refuge. The word for wings there, the Hebrew word is kanaf. And it's it's a word that describes this type of covering. The way that you would become engaged to a woman in that day, it's not by pulling out a ring and getting down on your knee. You would take your, your covering and you would place it over her. It's why you've seen some wedding, something like this used, where you place it over the bride. Because what you're saying is you're coming under my wing. You're coming under my protection. I will provide for you. I will protect you. And Boaz ends up answering his own prayer because in Ruth 3.9, he, he marries Ruth. This re- Hebrew word kanaf is found all throughout the Bible to describe the wings of a bird. And here we see God the creator, uh, the way he set up the system, various uh, mother birds that are caring for their young by covering them with their wings. And it's a picture of God. In Exodus 19.4, God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Psalm 57.1 says, In the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Psalm 91 verses 1 through 4 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. These pictures carry into the New Testament. As Jesus was preparing to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we're going to celebrate here in just a few weeks, as he was coming in, Matthew 23, verses 37, tell us, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. That picture at the bottom of the mother hen with her chicks. And this is the picture. This is is what's happening in our passage. And as you think in terms of God and his protection and these wings that he, he calls us to come under, I think of the story of a a fire crew that had been moving through a burned-out area, uh, tapping out all the remaining hotspots. And these these smoke jumpers were going through a a back area. And one of them saw this this bird that was kind of crouched down, and it had its wings cupped over, and the bird was singed. And and it looked like the bird was dead, but he couldn't tell. So he takes his shovel, and, and he gently pokes the bird to see if it's alive. And as he touches the bird... It was indeed dead and it fell over. 
And as the bird fell over, suddenly out came scurrying a bunch of chicks that were alive. And this mother bird, as the, the fire was approaching, could have flown away to safety, but instead she, she stayed and she covered her chicks with her wings and she gave her life to save that of her, her chicks. And this is a picture, friends, of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because he spread his arms wide on the cross. And he invites us to come under the covering of his wings. Jesus could have removed himself. Jesus could have saved himself. But he willingly went to that cross and he allowed himself to be nailed to it in order to pay the penalty of death that I and you owe for our sins. And he invites us to come under the covering of his wings. He says, you're not under the law. You can't get to God by keeping the 613 commandments. You've all fallen short. As Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we have a problem because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Now, the good news is, it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, if you will come to me, if you will come under my protection and receive my death in your place, my blood that was shed for you, then you will be saved. And here is a woman who came and said, I have this issuance of blood that needs to be healed. But it was a bigger problem that Jesus dealt with as well, because he he not only healed her physically, but he says to her in verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're not under the law. You're not under condemnation. You're healed. As Jesus whirls around and says, who touched me? I want you to put yourself in that crowd for a moment. There's the chaos and the crowd and people are pushing. And, and, and you, you've reached out and you've managed to touch the tassel and you feel you're healed. And oh, you back away and, and you just want to melt away into the crowd. But suddenly Jesus stops. Turns around and says, who touched me? And you're like, does he know? He's God. He knows. He didn't have to ask. He knows who she is. Why did he say, who touched me? Because he wants this woman to come out of the shadows. He wants this woman to know who she is in God's eyes. Here's a woman, as she comes out of the crowd, you can picture her just trembling in fear. As she throws herself on the ground, she fully expects Jesus, this righteous rabbi, this teacher of the law, to point at her and say, you wicked sinner, violating the law, being here in the crowd, what are you doing? But there's no condemnation. He looks at her with love. And he says, daughter. Think of what those words meant to this desperate, destitute, defiled woman who's been isolated for 12 years. And as every eye on the crowd is on her and she's thinking, here comes condemnation. Instead, he says, daughter. You remember what's going on in the the parallel miracle? Jairus is there saying, my daughter is dying. The most important man in the city, the man that everybody knows his family, knows this girl. She has a place of of prominence. And here's this, this defiled, destitute, desperate woman who's been living in the shadows. She's a nobody to everybody. And he says, you, daughter, are as important as the most important man's daughter in this city. 
Some of you this morning are like this woman. You came in here this morning and you're thinking, I don't belong here. Maybe you're wiped out physically, financially, spiritually. You're like this, this lady, discouraged and desperate, defiled. And, and, and you're wondering, why am I even here? Does God even know who I am? Friends, God knows you and he loves you. The Bible says God knows you so well, he even knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you intimately. He knows your name. And what society says to us is, if you're not important, you're, you're, you're a nobody. But God says, I don't measure your importance by your, your, your prominence in society. We have an enemy called Satan. He's called the destroyer, the father of lies. And he wants us to believe the lie that you're, you're damaged goods. That God wants nothing to do with you. God knows you and your sin. And how dare you even show up here in this church, you hypocrite. And what God says to us is, I'm not going to point a condemning finger at you and say, you wicked sinner. What God is going to do is he's going to open his arms and he's going to say, I didn't love you this much or this much. I love you this much. And Romans 5.8 tells us how much he loves us. As it says, he demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His arms are open wide this morning. And he's waiting for you to come to him. If you're somebody who's been hiding in the shadows saying, God would never want anything to do with me, you're wrong. God left his throne in heaven to come to earth to die for you and for me. And his arms are still open wide, not because they're still nailed to a cross. He came down off that cross. He went in a tomb and he rose from the dead and he's ascended to heaven. But his arms are still open wide because he says, I love you this much. And I'm waiting for you to come to me. Now, as this woman hears the word daughter, imagine what Jairus is thinking. Jairus is right there, and and he's saying, daughter, yes, my daughter's dying. Jesus, let's go. We don't have time for this. That's great for the lady, but come on, Jesus. And as he's wanting to grab Jesus and pull him uh, to his house, the, the news that he feared most comes, because verse 49 says, while Jesus was still speaking, Someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. You can picture the blood draining from this father's face. His knees start to buckle. As the dreaded news, death has come, sinks in. His heart breaks as he thinks about the heart of his little girl that has stopped beating. And he's told, don't trouble Jesus. Jesus can't help. There's nothing he can do. Or is there? Look at verse 50 through 53. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping for she is not, she has not died. She's asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. In that day when somebody died, Remember, they would bury the body the same day. So the, the, the funeral uh, arrangements began immediately. And part of that was there were professional mourners who would show up at the house. 
You had friends and family, but there were people who were actually paid to show up in sackcloth and ashes and be weeping and wailing, and some were musicians who would play the flute, a, a dirge or something. They were there to set the mood, to establish the tone of mourning. And these are probably the people who are laughing at Jesus. He shows up and he says, the girl is not dead. And they're going, dude, would you get out of here? You're ruining the mood. What are you trying to bring hope into a hopeless situation for? The girl's dead. And Jesus puts him out. He says, get out of the house. Jesus isn't denying the, the reality of death here. But what he's doing is focusing them on the hope that comes when you bring the Lord of life into the situation. And as he puts this crowd out, he, he takes the parents and a few of his disciples into the room. Now, as they walk into the room, there's the little girl lying lifeless. The last time Jairus saw his daughter, she was gasping for breath, and he's going, I've got to go get Jesus. And now as he looks at his little girl, her body's lifeless. His wife buries her head in his chest, weeping. Tears are streaming down his own face as he looks and, 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 and he whispers to his little girl, I'm sorry I tried. I was too late. Some of the disciples are there. They feel like they're intruding. Have you ever been in a room like that and you're like, I don't belong here? They're pressed up against the back wall, Why, you know, and they're looking on. And for once in his life, Peter doesn't have anything to say, right? <laughs> Peter, the guy who just said, Jesus, everybody's touching you. He's there silent. And now it's time for Jesus to touch. Look at verses 54 through 56. He, however, took her by the hand. And he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Now, it's both a sign that she's alive as well as to nourish her physical body. She's probably been days without anything to eat or drink. And he says, Feed the little girl, she's alive. It's not little ice chips and, and tiny things. It's a full meal. She's, she's restored. And as, as she gets up and this is happening, he turns to the parents and he says, don't tell anybody. And you're going, are you kidding me? I mean, all the mourners who a moment ago were laughing, when this little girl comes walking out, they're going to go, and the news is going to spread. But what Jesus is saying is it's not yet time for people to know who I am. As we're looking at this amazing miracle that takes place, I want to I say something here because there are sometimes too many mistakes that are made when it comes to, to miracles or faith. There is so much bad theology that is out there where people do damage and hurt others. And they tell somebody, if you had more faith, you would be healed. If you just had enough faith, your loved one would have lived. If you had the right faith, then this or that wouldn't have happened to you. Friends, that is bad theology. Do you remember what Jesus is, is telling Jairus in our passage? Does he have a lot of faith here? Jesus had to turn to him and say, look, I know it's hopeless, but hold on. Something's going to happen. There's another example of a, a father without faith in Mark chapter 9. There, there's another father whose, whose son was demon-possessed. And he comes to Christ and he says, will you help my boy? And Jesus looks at him and says, do you really believe I can help your son? 
And that man cries out in Mark 9, 24, Lord, help my unbelief. No, Jesus, I don't have enough faith. And Jesus said, well, without faith, I won't heal your son, right? And he walks away. No. He says, Jesus restored that boy. Friends, there are times in the Bible where somebody is healed even where there's a lack of faith. And there are times where somebody has abundant faith and healing does not occur. You ever heard of a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul? Would anybody here say he had faith? And yet the scriptures tell us that he prayed three different times that God would remove an ailment in his body called the thorn in his flesh. And God said, no, I'm going to give you the grace that is needed to walk through this. I won't, I won't bring healing. Faith does not always change our circumstances, but it will always change us. Faith does not always change our circumstances, but it will change us. F.B. Meyer once said this, Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. Let me say that again. Unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. Faith is not a magic rabbit's foot. The tassels on Jesus' garment were not something to be rubbed and touched and like a genie in a lamp, God popped out and did what they wanted. Things don't always turn out the way we had prayed, but with faith there is always hope. I saw two vivid examples of that just two days ago on Friday. This past Friday... I was with a a young family in our church who was burying their one-day-old son. This is a young family who had a baby who was born and, and died the same day. And as we're planning their memorial service for their son, the father said he and his wife wanted to have parts in it where they would read scripture, where they would tell stories about their son. And one of the passages that the father wanted to read in the memorial was from 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, that's the passage where David and Bathsheba lost their baby son. And David, you'll remember, weeped and mourned and fasted and asked that God would heal the child. And then the child died. And and David got up and he washed himself and he worshiped the Lord. And people are going, what are you doing? And David said, you know, when my child was alive, I I, I begged God for mercy and to heal my son, but God has spoken. And the passage that he wanted read was 2 Samuel 12, 23, where it says, where David said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. God gave us in his inerrant word that truth that when a child, a baby like that dies, they go into the presence of the Lord. And in the midst of this extreme grief and loss and hurt, faith and hope broke into the darkness to say we've lost our son, but his life is not lost. He's home with the Lord of life. We'll see him again one day in heaven. And as I was finishing that funeral, there was a text on my phone that said, you need to come to the ICU of one of our local hospitals. Because there was a a couple in our church where the wife had suffered a a massive heart attack that morning. She had to be resuscitated twice before they got to the ICU. 
as I walked into the, the hospital room, having come from a funeral into this room, here, here is a, a man standing by the, the bedside of his bride. They've been married longer than most people in this room have been alive. And as I hugged this husband, and as I came alongside her bed and I began to, to pray for both the peace of God for him and, and God's mercy and potential healing for her, uh, in that midst of, of what seemed like a, a total hopeless situation, this, this husband said to me, this is a time where you better know the Lord and where you're going. He said, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know where she will be if God is ready for her. That is the hope that comes with the Christian faith, friends. In the midst of the darkest, scariest times, when God doesn't walk in and, and raise a little girl from the dead or stop a funeral and raise a little boy from the dead or bring back his friend Lazarus out of the grave, that God is able to say to us the truth of 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where it tells us we grieve, but what? Not as the unbeliever who has no hope. The Lord of life brings hope even into the darkest, scariest situations. I think of the story that's told of a, a father and his young son who were in an apartment building in, in London during the terrible days of the Blitzkrieg when Germany would rain uh, bombs on, on London each night. And his father and his son were in their apartment building when a bomb struck it and the, the building caught on fire. And the father knew they had to get out of the building. They, they, had, to, they had to run out of this building as bombs were still falling all around. Buildings were on fire. You could kind of see things from the, the, the fires around. And there was this, this big hole in the courtyard where another bomb had already fallen and created this big hole. And the father comes running up to the hole, needing, knowing they needed to find shelter immediately. He, he gets his young son on the edge of the hole, and the father jumps into the darkness, into the hole. And then he turns around, and, and he looks up, and he says to his son, Jump. And this little boy in the darkness, staring into the darkness, is terrified. Bombs are falling, fires are around, and he's staring into the darkness. And he says, but I can't see you. Daddy, I can't see you. And the father, as he looks up, sees his son silhouetted by the fires. And he says, but I can see you. Jump. And the little boy, trusting his father, leaps into the darkness, and he's caught safely in his father's arms. Friends, some of you this morning are staring into the blackness. You're looking into a hole and you're saying, I can't see you, God. I don't know what's down there. I don't know what's happening, but God calls out in the darkness. But I can see you. Believe in me. Have faith and jump. And when we step off in faith, our Heavenly Father will catch us. There are dark and scary times in this world. There are times that our hope seems to be lost. But if our hope and faith is in God the Father, if we've come to Jesus Christ and we've come under the covering of his wings, if we've come to him, he says that death is not the end of life. First Corinthians says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And it goes on to say, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who gave us the victory. Death does not win when we are with the Lord of life. And so if you're here this morning, friends, and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you this morning to acknowledge who you are, a sinner, 
Separated from God from the mistakes you've made. And to see yourself as God sees you, not as some wicked person he's going to chase away, but as one where he says, daughter or son, come to me. The Bible says when we come to faith in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We are brought in as sons and daughters. And he says, my arms are open wide. Romans 10.9 says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And he welcomes you this morning. If you're far from him to turn around, you'll find he's right there saying, my arms are open wide. I'm waiting for you. Will you accept my son, Jesus? Will you come under his covering of his outstretched arms? Will you allow his blood that was shed to wash away your sins? If you'd like to do that, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me as we close. Will you just bow your heads? And what we're going to say to God this morning, if you've never done so, is God, I'm a sinner. And I believe, Jesus, you're who you said you are, the Lord of life, the one who came to pay that penalty of death that I owed. And today, Jesus, I'm accepting you. I'm reaching out. I'm touching you and accepting your gift of grace. If that's your desire, then pray this prayer. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life where I haven't been perfect. I've fallen short of your commands. And because of that, Lord, I know I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and took my place. You spread your arms open wide on the cross. You provided the covering for me to come under and to be washed clean by your blood. I believe you're who you said you are, the Lord of life. The one who showed it by rising from the dead three days later as you conquered sin and death and our enemy, Satan. Thank you, Lord, for inviting me into your family. Thank you, God, for the gift of eternal life you've given to me. And Lord God, would you help the rest of us who have come to you in the past? Lord, would you help us to have faith, which will take us not just through life, but also into the life beyond death's door? We thank you, God, for your great love for us, which was demonstrated as you died on the cross showing you can take care of the greatest problem we ever have as you've already conquered sin and death. Lord, we will face hard things in this world, but as those who trust you for eternity, would you help us to trust you for the day-to-day things we will face? Thank you, God, for being faithful. Thank you, God, for being there and loving us. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.